Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. Okay, folks, I'm going to be honest. I've been on a weird buying and selling gear spree. Things are coming in. Things are going out. It's like a, I don't know, it's a whole wide world. I feel like the single coil transition that I'm having really just sent me in this whole, it's, I'm questioning everything. What's up? What's down? I don't know. So <laughs> the most recent uh, situation was I had acquired a 1978 Fender Music Master bass. I've talked at length about my love of short scales and I I didn't have any and it was weird and uh, I got this Music Master bass um, it's a real player's model. I got it for a song because it was like real beat up and it had a very weird pickup situation that someone had like already hacked up. Like there was some weird phase thing happening that seemed like they were installed incorrectly. I don't know. So I got it because I didn't feel bad sending it to my buddy Nick Holcomb to basically just like redo the whole thing, add a new P-Bass pickup. I got a Seymour Duncan quarter pounder in there and add a new pick guard. So that kind of fixed the major issue, which I had had with almost the exact same model when I'd had it probably like 15 years ago or 10 years ago or something, which is that the pickup, which, you know, I just didn't want to mess with it because it was vintage and I just was not really ever into the sound of it. It's a, it's a great bass, just never liked the way it sounded, but now it sounds awesome. And uh, hopefully I'll share something of that with you shortly. I don't know. It's uh, it's getting wild over here, but it's, um, I don't know. It's nice to mix things up, try some new things, right? So a couple of other quick non-music slash podcast related notes. So I, I recently was a guest on two different podcasts. So the first was the Swim Masters podcast, which is run by Natalie Morrison and Steffi LeMond. SWIM is Smart Women in Music, which is a group affiliated with NAM, which focuses on women in the music industry. And the other podcast I was on was Queen of Shit Mountain, which is LG from Thelma and the Sleezes podcast. If you ever want to hear me answering other people's questions, you can check out either of those. Both are very different from each other. They have very different vibes and very different questions, too. So, uh, so yeah, check those out if you are interested. Anyway. I want to get into things quickly today, so let's get going on that, shall we? So first, I, I want to thank some of Midriff's fabulous sponsors. So let's start with Earthquaker Devices. If you've ever dreamt of seeing Sylvia Massey using a literal shotgun mic, which obviously you have, like a, a mic made out of an actual shotgun, I urge you to move your attention to Earthquaker's YouTube where you can watch that dream become a reality. Also, one of Earthquaker's most popular longtime pedals, the Dispatch Master, has a video manual series with lots of cool sounds and like tips and tricks, which you might want to check out. And on deck on Earthquaker's website is a conversation with Emily Wolf and a live video demo with the band Spotlights on their Instagram. Plus, so much more. As always, you can check out Earthquaker Devices and all of their rad pedals, handmade in Akron, Ohio, at EarthquakerDevices.com. Up next, we have DistroKid. So if you are a musician and you want to get your music out there to more people, but you really aren't sure how, it can be confusing, I get it, uh, DistroKid can help you. DistroKid puts your music in online stores and streaming services such as iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, a whole bunch more. 
you get 100% of the income, so they don't take out any fees at all. And it allows you to do like customized splits to different band members, which is awesome. They have this thing called Teams that lets you do it. And that's obviously super useful. If you have more than one project, you can sign up for that as well. It's just a really great option to get your music out there without a label, or perhaps you are a label and you want to do it that way. And that's awesome too. They'll add your lyrics to services for you. And you can even do a fancy global release where everything gets released at the exact same time all around the world, regardless of time zone. It's pretty cool. So you can use the link distrokid.com slash VIP slash midriff to get 7% discount on that. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Last but not least, I want to mention my buddies Adam and Jen at Stompbox Sonic in Boston. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged, and I love the pedal that they helped me pick out. It was extremely useful just to have a little bit of guidance. I wasn't sure what I was looking for, and they they really helped me get there, and they can do that for you, too. If you're interested in a consultation or you just want to see their like cool, unique selection, check them out on social media or at stompboxsonic.com. These sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them as well. You can find links in the show notes to all the sponsors and to Midriff's Instagram and Facebook pages and website as well. I put so much love and care into the show notes. Please check them out. (laughs) Uh, Read them. Get them tattooed on your body. Do what feels right. So today's guest is Marcy D.H. Marcy is an Arizona-based musician who makes just super super sick electronic music just so good with vocals and percussive elements like I, I want to say it's like a Bjorky sort of thing but there's just a lot there's so much going on it's it's really great just like a, a nice mix of like indie and kind of like weird like almost mathy prog stuff I don't know uh it's great and the percussive stuff is also interesting because it connects back to her experience as a drummer she has background in audio engineering too has some experience with that And we discussed that and a lot more as well. This one gets really deep in a really great way. And I think you're really going to like it. So definitely check out the whole thing. Don't stop. Just keep going. And after our interview, you can stick around longer because I'm going to talk about prevention through parenting. So with that, here's my interview with Marcy. Thanks for being here. 
It's exciting. I'm glad to be. I appreciate you inviting me. So. Of course. I'm here. excited to have you and uh, your crew in the back there. There is a very adorable dog. Yes, that's uh, June. And, and then yes. my partner, Courtney, who Hello. you cannot see, she's laying down and yes. June is is accosting her at the moment. So I'm, I, I'm very excited. You've got a good background going on. You've got like you've got people, you've got dogs, you've got gear. We're going to talk about most of those things probably at Excellent. some point. So for folks who might not know you, can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, yes. and a little bit about yourself and your background with music? My name is Marcy. I make music under the name Marcy DH. My pronouns are she and her. I am in Arizona. I live in Arizona where I've lived all of my life. That's not totally true. I came here from Texas when I was very young and spent most of my years in Arizona. The music I make tends to kind of harken back to my formal training with music as well as just strange interests. So I always played in band and orchestra. And of course, mm -hmm. classical music became important to me when I was pretty young. I played jazz mm -hmm. when I was in high school. And those things have kind of permeated into everything else that I've done over the years. I started off as a drummer or percussionist and uh, play piano and picked up other things in order to be able to to communicate and, and play with other people. But I always enjoyed writing music. And I kind of saw that the more things I could play, the better it was to, to do what I wanted. So, yeah. 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 So that's like, uh, so you started with orchestra or you started with, okay. I did. Well, so, you know, fifth grade band as a percussionist, I started there. By the time I was in junior high school and in high school, I was playing percussion in the, the orchestras as well, as well as just the, the formal band and marching band in high school and those kinds of things. So, But I, I enjoyed orchestras in particular. Like I, I love kind of classical and orchestral music, so mm. it's kind of a joy. And then those kind of meet up with the fact that I'm still a drummer. I enjoy right. mangling things. That's, that's fun. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it seems like the stuff that you're doing is has a lot of like really interesting percussive elements. Um, yeah, I tend to lean yeah. on that. That's kind of the the foundation of most things. I enjoy it. Totally. Yeah. yeah, but even like the things that you're doing, like I saw you use like a, it seems like a drum brute or something. I'm yeah, assuming you have a number of different pieces that. Yeah. Yeah. So I um I've used a drum brute a lot in the past. I actually haven't used it in quite a while. I have a Archeria mini brute as well and a modular mm -hmm. with that one. But yeah, I kind of like finding the bridge between those things. I have some contact mics that I use to move sound sources into my modular rig and, and that kind of stuff. But my real and purpose of all of that is, is kind of blending between this organic world of real instruments and electronic things and finding the place where they're all the same and it's hard to tell which universe they exist in. You know, I, that's, right. Totally. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. So like when or how old were you? I guess two things. When did you start playing like actual kit? I started in, that must've been like eighth grade. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And then as far as like the synth piece of this, as you're like, as you're getting older and mm -hmm. expanding and trying different things, like what did that process look like for you? Yeah. So let's see if I can actually figure out when that happens. And this relates to like the first of some of my first instruments so i think my actual first instrument was my little percussion kit from school but then also i had a synthesizer that my parents it's a casio sk1 the, the, the oh, infamous yeah. sk1 i still have <laughs> it it's behind me on the Classic. piano right there <laughs> oh yeah i can see yeah. it and then when i was 20 at a local music store i found a juno 60 which was great oh, yeah. Um, it had a sequencer with it and everything, but I was a dummy and I didn't know what I had, <laughs> but I was excited to buy it. Like it was really cool. And, and I took that home and spent years 
just making fun stuff with that. And that was really great. Uh, and then I sold it. I can't remember why I did that, but my partner would tell you that I, I lament the, the selling of that quite often. We will never still. speak of it again. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I haven't let it go. <laughs> I think everyone has something like that at yeah. some point. Yeah. <laughs> but at that stage, I was um, I was living in an apartment and not playing a drum kit very often anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started recording then and, and making more music of my own and doing a lot more synthesis at that point. So I think that's where that really started. That Juno, once I kind of got rid of it, I didn't really return to synthesizers for a while. I used some software synthesizers over the years. I was primarily always working in a, in a DAW. So mm-hmm. that was kind of my joy at the time to, to get me through those stages. <laughs> so, but, but then, of that's course, it's carried over. Yeah. It's an interesting thing that like sometimes the particular constraints of a space require you to just like delve into a whole other situation not that it's a whole other situation but expand in a particular way oh absolutely yeah i totally like that was my experience with it so as a drummer i always had an anxiety about playing loudly and bothering people that's tied to Mm. other aspects about about my (laughs) life or my upbringing but i never wanted to bother people but so what you just said that that makes perfect sense Um, and that was my experience because i needed a way to keep going where i could just be kind of self-contained and those limits were good because it forced me into a situation that i wouldn't have thought or needed to pursue otherwise. Um, it, mm-hmm. it forced me to try to do something else and realize how much I could do, how much more I could actually do. So uh, definitely a good thing. What do you use for a DAW or what did you use or what do you use now, I guess? I work in Pro Tools and I have since I think 1999. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 It was the first thing I learned and it was, I bought like a, one of those old Digi 001 things. I found a way to do what I needed and have never moved to anything else. I've tried a few things here and there, but nothing's, I'm always trying to find how do I know how to do this in Pro Tools. So how do I do? I like <laughs> yes. what I know. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. It's sometimes yeah. it's like, okay, do I try and make this the other thing do this thing that I yeah. want? Yeah. But the comfort is there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know that I'm missing a lot in terms of, you know, what people tell me I'm missing. I don't know if they're right or not. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Uh, it works. I enjoy the way it but, works for me. Yeah, but it's, you know, you can, it kind of shapes the way that you're creating a little bit. Like, Absolutely. With, with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because like if you were using, I don't know, I, I, I use Logic and like there are things in there that you can, you can really get into and mess with as far as like loops and different things like that, which yeah. are cool. I haven't used Pro Tools, so I don't even know. I've, oh. I'm aware that there are just like extensive capabilities of Pro Tools, but it's like the the angle with which it is it excels, I think, is different, perhaps. I, you know, I haven't used a lot of other DAWs. I think that that's true yeah. from what I hear other folks say, but I use Pro Tools because I'm familiar with it. But I'm I'm yeah. certainly not making the claim that it's superior in any way. It's just superior for me and. Uh, that's yeah. what matters. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> Everyone has to find their thing, and I'm lazy and don't want to learn another one. <laughs> Did you, when, I guess I'm curious about your process of getting into like modular a little bit yeah, or, or like what it is you use now and kind of like how that sort of progressed. Yeah. So, you know, let me think back. So there's that period of time I was mentioning living in the apartment, started to record. I had my Juno and an old Roland space echo, the three zero one, yeah. which again, I Ooh. sold. Come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I had a good time with those. I, I loved to like, the mad science thing I did in my room, just 
coming up with sounds and finding a way to make a sound to an instrument. Mm -hmm. So I started off with very few tools and very little know-how doing that. And that was kind of fun. Over the years, I got back to playing drums more. I I worked in a recording studio for for a period of time. And that was because of all of my interest in the things I developed learning in Pro Tools. I just got to where I fell in love with sounds, like the sounds, Mm. the sonics of things. And I think I got a little tone greedy about most things. And I'm like, I have to make this thing sound the way that I like really, really hear it. You know, and mm-hmm. I love the dark sound of of everything. Like there's like a darkness in things that I love pulling out. And I think that that makes it's exciting. And every room you're in, everything that makes a sound, there's something interesting. And And a lot of my current process comes from that my obsession with tones but also in that was that obsession with with sounds and and patterns and cycles and and the way that those things stacking up over each other just make these beautiful textures it's everywhere mm-hmm. you go like there's this beautiful texture in everything if you focus it and find the part that's playing with the other parts and you know i love that and things that i don't have to manipulate to get you know if i throw this thing over there at the hi-hat it's going to make a sound that in there is something really interesting and and i I think that all the time it's exciting that's that's what i love about music and sound and and finding all these things um so getting to that was that progression Mm -hmm. you know i worked in the studio i was really serious about the way things sounded and that has turned into more of my current my modern approach for me is that i I like building the sounds of instruments and I feel like the mood of whatever I'm trying to make is inherent to the sound first and not just the instrument itself. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to play piano. Cool. But like I can play the piano or I can do this to the piano and it's going to be even better. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate the, like, I like the idea of like being tone greedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, it's interesting to get into the space where you're like, digging in so much on like every bit of, of every piece of the, what's happening mm-hmm. that you're it almost gives it like this whole other experience so it's almost like it makes it like four-dimensional or something like that yeah uh so as far as like the music that you're actually creating so maybe yeah. i mean maybe you can describe it for folks in your own words obviously i will have already described it before this but like okay. i think it's used for you to describe it to people and then we can talk a little bit more about the specific gear that you're using right now. Okay. Yeah. The question of what kind of music am I making, it boggles me a little bit. And <laughs> I sometimes will try to explain, oh, you know, I'm, I'm avoiding working toward a genre and, or this yeah. and that. And, and those things are fine. And I don't know that they're true, though. I just, I hear things and I like to make things. So typically things that are important elements in the music I like are rhythm. I love rhythm, whether it's coming from from drums or from, you know, just really like ticky tacky type sounds to be able to, to build rhythms. But I also love the way that rhythms can kind of helix around each other. You know, I don't do this often, but it's a, a maybe a regular approach is finding things that are in different, different meters and, and the way that those mm-hmm. will kind of play, play back and forth with each other and the way that those create this movement in different passages of music or different, you know, parts from my chorus to my verse and that stuff if i'm making a popish kind of song all of those things are important i also really like just swooping kind of soundscapes more recently i've been trying to mess with more strings again which i've been mm-hmm. enjoying playing ukulele actually as well and and 
being able to play in such a way that I'm pulling those notes apart and pulling those tones uh, to much longer bits than what they really naturally are. But it's always kind of those those instruments. I like melody and I like rhythm and I like finding the place where they're both the same thing and then allowing them to kind of diverge where you hear them become more of the same. But I really like the, just that movement of dark, pensive music. That's That's my joy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also yeah, like things well, that are really gritty too. Like I, I, I love aggressive tones and I don't consider juxtaposition, but uh, aggressive tones as that they, they pull apart into just like beautiful sounds. So as far as like how you're creating those sounds, what's your setup? What are you, what are you using generally? So for the most part, I'm, I'm these days always working in my DAW. I'll start mm-hmm. there for the most part, but where I start is a little bit different. I might start with some rhythm. I have a fun time picking up just little software percussion samplers, and those are kind of fun. I've been with this one called Slammer recently, and I will uh, admit that I come to some target marketing on the social media because I clicked <laughs> that link and bought it within minutes. So I'm like, yeah, this is mine. I'm, I'm they got me. They, did. they always do. Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, so that's like one approach. I'll start with rhythm sometimes if that's what I'm feeling. Sometimes I'll hear a sound in my kitchen and I'm like, oh, and it makes me think of some melody I'm singing while I'm doing dishes and I'll come back and and, and try to put that together. And invariably it turns into something else, uh, mm. but it's always a good start. And from that, I guess I'm trying to explain that it always starts from some mood, you know, whatever mm-hmm. mood I'm in when I sit down. But from there, it's, a, it's a typically... A dish doing mood or yeah. a... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll usually start with whatever that first piece was and kind of build it sonically till it feels exciting for whatever it was. And then I just mm-hmm. start seeing what else I can add to it, you know, and, and I try not to take a, now I do this, now I do this determined approach. I'm like, I want to put piano on this day. Now I want like this Rhodes piano. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Mm. Or, you know, I'll mess with, I have a tongue drum. Uh, I got really obsessed oh, with yeah. when I got that as a Christmas present for my partner. And, you know, and I put that on a bunch of stuff cause it's just, Oh, there's this new thing. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's always that variable that, but that is the, the common way is my intention is to make a recording. When I sit down to work these days, it's like I'm making recordings and that's what I'm aiming toward. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll mess around, but I'm not in that headspace lately. So yeah. Yeah. So you're using, I'm looking behind you right now. So you've got a, a ukulele. Is that a piano or a farfisa? I can't really tell what it is. So it is a piano. Um, okay. And then to the other side, there is a little organ um, yep. that the ukulele is sitting on my drum kit, my little 60s single Slingerland kit, oh, yeah. uh, this djembe that I got. Uh, so a, a sequential, sequential circuit six track on top of the piano. What else am I not pointing out here? There's some pedals that are kind of lining the piano there. <laughs> I think that's what about you, everything that's use, there. How, how do you determine which pieces are using that are more like hard you know, hardware versus software. Again, kind of just how I'm feeling in that moment. Sometimes I feel mm-hmm. very tactile, you know, and I, I want to put my hands on on some delay pedals. And uh, and that's kind of a fun thing. That's something I've done a lot of is I like to, I have two um, electroharmonics memory boys that I'll mm. kind of use together on a single sound source. And I try to play their feedback, you know, one to the other, Ooh. which is yeah. always fun. I like to, to define the place where I can, again, bend them into anything else. So that's kind of fun, but it really is just the mood every now and again, I'll, maybe I'm down on a particular instrument or trying to make something with a guitar and, and realize, no, this really needs to be a guitar more. And, and sometimes there I'll lean 
more on, on using some pedals. And, and I don't use a lot. I don't have a lot, which I like. I like having a little of a lot rather than a, a lot of a little. <laughs> yeah. It sounds very practical, your approach, almost like whatever yeah. serves the song kind of or the... Yeah, absolutely. I'm not married to any particular thing or even being any particular kind of musician. You know. I tell people I'm a drummer and drums are the instrument I feel most proficient at. Like I would play them mm -hmm. publicly anytime with anyone. Other things I'm like, yeah, we can sit together and play and we can make stuff and I feel competent enough, but like I'm not a player you know, unless, unless I'm playing <laughs> drums. Like it's, it's very different. I'm like, I, I'm probably not as bad as I'm making it sound. I think I'm I, certain that's <laughs> probably the case. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent. I do enjoy just being able to play with people's fun and, and drums are always yeah. the easiest way into that for me. So, yeah, it sounds like, it seems like you do some other collaborating too, though. Yeah, that's been, um, it's always kind of a, a tricky thing. I have a few projects in the works right now. Some of them started last year and you know, last year was last year. Uh, <laughs> And a few things that are hopefully wrapping up or getting to something soon. I um, a couple months ago, I met a local singer at a farmer's market, and she was she was singing, and she was great. And she did this amazing cover of "Where Is My Mind." And um, oh wow! And so I just went and said hi afterwards. And then a couple of days later, I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I messaged her, and we're working on some recordings now, and that's been oh, great. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, good time. So that kind of stuff, and. I'm working with Thomas Hipson in France. He's a drummer that I met via Instagram. I, yay, social media. Hey, internet. Um, and so I have these few things like in the works there and Ash Farron for working on a thing and, and it's fun, but I'm, cool. I, I don't have a lot that I feel like I've finished yet in terms of my collaborative work, but honestly, that's what I enjoy more. I, I love working with other people. I love making music with other people. Uh, it's hard to come by at times. And so I'll make music by myself. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as far as your experience, like working in a studio and your own production, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I started, you know, as a, a bedroom producer, you know, making my own stuff. And I had a relationship with a local studio owner from the time like, I was a teenager. I, a friend's band had recorded there. And years later, I sent someone to that studio and and, uh, and thanks, they gave me a key and I could come anytime and, and work on what I wanted. And that was, that was a wonderful situation. Wow. And I continued always, I was producing my own music, trying to work with bands I was either playing with or trying to work with at the time. And then I ended up moving and working to a, at another studio for, for a couple of years as well. And I was, that's kind of the staff engineer. Uh, that was my question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was working as a staff engineer. And so, you know, the, the, the guy that owned the place had a lot of production work of his own and I would take some of that spillover. I'd bring my own projects when I had time, but I always wanted to really focus more on either producing music for other folks or just continue to work on my own. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, that working with other people is, is the part about music that I enjoy the most, regardless of how much I've done on my own. <laughs> yeah. That's exciting. It's exciting to see both like how your own process functions and like kind of, it's almost like you can like analyze yourself and the way that that works. And then like the way you can see how someone else functions and yeah. either like shepherding in certain ways through the process or like interacting and like figuring out how, what that looks like collaboration might look like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really do enjoy that part of trying to find out, you know, I explained like my process of how I start into music, but I'm, I'm equally as excited all the time about how other people do them. Totally. Yeah. 
so I, I want to get in a little bit about talking about your experience around like gender identities and gear. Yeah. Um, so how, can you talk a little bit, it's like, is there one area where you've had like more, like better experiences or one area that's had more challenges? So it could be with regard to like live stuff or in the studio. So this is always an interesting thing to me that I'll explain it this way. I'm, I'm trans. Uh, and my pre-transition life took up most of my musical life with other people. Um, post-transition life has been more joyous for lots of reasons. Um, and and some of those struggles in the past, like those difficulties there, I I don't have a good sense of being able to understand why or, or how those things work. You know, ostensibly, mm-hmm. I fit in with the people I was around pre-transition that I, you know, didn't let on but it was never true I, everything i did and most things that i did i always felt some sense that you know people didn't think i knew what i was doing and, mm. and and that's always been there i i i can't say specifically what that's been i i can have lots of assumptions about it and i have lots of opinions but i don't really know and so mm-hmm. those difficulties that sense of not fitting in that sense of not being taken seriously that sense of like you know people immediately discounting i still feel like always kind of came from that same place that sense that there's a rightness and a wrongness about people and and there's a rightness and wrongness about what people do speaking of my social experience i yeah. i grew up in the west i have known very few other black folks my whole life very few mostly my family were a lot of the only black folks i know for my growing up until my adult life mm-hmm. um and that that concept of rightness the rightness of kind of person permeated everywhere i went and that is what i suspect was largely behind those difficult situations you know now on the opposite of that i described to you a few minutes ago like a situation where someone with no need at all gave me the key to their studio and let me keep showing up i had a lot of luck like it's it's a strange situation for me often as a black trans woman to say that I feel in my sphere, I have more privilege than anyone I know. And that's, mm. it's strange. And mm-hmm. because I can't, I don't like to say it to people who don't understand the concept in the first place. Um, <laughs> I especially don't like to say it to people who are critical of the notion of privilege, because I feel like saying that creates a detriment for people who don't have as much privilege as I have for any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, been, I've been very lucky, uh, despite those things, but I've not felt very connected. I've not felt very much a part of working with other people or, or that joy that comes from being a part of something that has more to do with me than, than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your point around collaboration and wanting to work with more people and feeling that separation. Yeah. Do you feel that's because that of the, like not feeling like feeling separate or feeling like you aren't fitting in, in that way? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, some of those things certainly came from my anxiety about the way that I approached it, that, that I think minority threat is the term that's often used about that, uh, or, um, stereotype threat. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Stereotype threat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, we're on the same page. I'm with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that was part of the way that I navigated, but as well, I did always kind of get back, you know, those things, those negative assumptions, those negative experiences were typically the first part of every experience. Mm-hmm. And so that didn't do a lot to make me comfortable enough to show more of myself to people and as well did not make an opportunity for me to impress anyone. You know, they, they were beyond impression from the start. Then there's not mm-hmm. much point in trying, you know, and so that, that changed the way I think that I looked for 
who to, to make music with or who to be around. And then, you know, as this life kind of got old, got moving along and I got older, of course, that got more difficult. People kind of settled into where they are and settled into the routines and settled into the meaning of things in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it for sure has, has always impacted how I've worked with people. But what I do see on this side of my transition is the way in which I can feel whole myself allows me to be present with people in a way that does mm-hmm. combat those things that I can't change. I don't feel a lack of confidence about who I am. I just lack the confidence that who I am is always going to work well for anyone I meet. Right. And that's, and that's okay. an interesting, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting juxtaposition too. It's like, which of those spaces you're holding at any particular yeah. moment. Yeah. yeah. Like whether, you know, whether it's almost like an internal versus an external thing. Right. And yeah. And I, I've carried so much confusion about the source of all those things. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer about it. I know that there are people I've met more recently that I appreciate that I can be closer to and, and make music with and not have those barriers in place, not have these proving grounds uh, among something that to me is just meant to be an extension of my my emotional existence, you know, my philosophy of the world and the way I experience it. Like that's what music should be about. And getting to be myself was the opportunity to retry at those, those things that just couldn't work before you know, for lots mm-hmm. of reasons. I, you know, I could never know why they wouldn't work that. Yeah. Does it feel, does that expression feel different now then? Absolutely. Yeah. I feel that I can put more of myself into anything that I do. I feel currently that what I do is a reflection of true interest. And I feel like in the past I was kind of chasing opportunity. I was chasing the opportunity to be accepted by people a lot. Mm-hmm. And that certainly made its way into the kind of music I made and the kind of music I surrounded myself with or tried to play with others it's it's more real now because I'm more real. I'm actually adding myself to it rather than adding a character as, as most of those experiences Ooh, were. That's deep. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a really good analysis, I think, of just the character versus the true self piece. Yeah, it's, um, it's noticeable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder how much of that exists for other folks in in music generally, like mm-hmm. who feels like they can really participate in that way and what allows for that experience a little bit. I am curious about that too, is, yeah. you know, maybe I, I make a mental appeal to believing what I see uh, and I, and I never know, you know, I don't know what's yeah. actually true most of the time. So, but for me, I, I feel more real in, in the things that I do now than I ever did before, regardless of wanting mm-hmm. to before. Right. So as far as your experience around gear and identity and gender, like what has that specific space been like? Oh, yeah. So, you know, in the past, my experience was I didn't get a lot of pushback for the things I was interested in. Mm -hmm. The pushbacks are about (laughs) areas of that. But in general, you know, the expectation is I could do what I want, whatever. It wasn't true, but that's kind of the idea. So in the past, the, you know, like I was saying, the ostensibly being able to really fit in and do whatever I wanted. Um, mm-hmm. What happens, of course, in the that bridge period between like my life and before and transition stuff was I became very self-conscious about my interests. Mm-hmm. You know, I became very self-conscious that like, oh, if I like these things that I just like, it 
it means one thing or the other. And I was in this state of proving my identity to people, you know, of trying to use their own language to prove my gender to them, which Mm -hmm. is really silly. But it was substantial in the way that I didn't know what was mine. I should mention, like, the years leading up to my transition and even my current musical life, I had stopped playing music for a long time. Um, Mm. When my daughter was born, I think when she was about one, I stopped playing. And I didn't start playing again until about four years ago. I would dabble here and there, but I wasn't seriously pursuing a lot of it. And so in that period of the coming back was where I was feeling that like, well, what's mine anymore? Like, I I don't know why I liked or cared about these things back then. I think I was kind of going along with what the people around me were doing. And that was kind of part of that thing. And it took me a while to settle into building a sense of, oh, all of this is mine. Like, all of this is mine. Like, that was the point is that all of this is mine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was uh, those those barriers were more substantial before. And there was also a, a like the, that rightness thing that, that, that permeated more of it. And moving away from that and being around people who accept me for who I am, and thereby I also see accept everyone around them as well. Everyone is just taking from what is there and making it their own. And everyone does mm-hmm. that in a way that's just this beautiful thing. That So for me, it was that experience with gear you know, directly was part of that sense of like, I belong in the world in a place where all these things were. I don't have these things that I used to do and I have to give them up to, to be someone else. Like that's not a part of it, but that was woven into the way I viewed myself. It's woven into the way I viewed my life and my opportunities. That's been broken down by being on this side of it many years past with the world, you know, it was more of then to, to be accepted for who I am and thereby find more people who exemplify like the reality I always wanted and knew everything is mine and everything is there and and why not? And I, I love participating in that in a way to honor that sense before that, that I myself kind of built some disrespect for thinking I couldn't. Right. So it's like feeling like you're able to connect to it in a different way or feeling like more openness, I guess, to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I, feeling like I, I can just try something and whether or not it's acceptable for me to be doing it uh, is irrelevant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you felt pushback in, in any of that? The, like you're saying, whether or not you're accept- it's acceptable? Not anymore. No, I don't. Yeah. In the past, I did. let me be more specific too. I guess I should sure. talk about this more directly. Like I remember even the music that I liked in, in my past life was always expected to fall within a certain realm. I'm like, I just don't like that. And and this doesn't have to mean one thing or the other. This doesn't have to be a gendered experience, but it always right. was, mm-hmm. uh, especially around other musicians. It always was. I, I remember playing. You, can you give an example? Oh, yeah, yeah. So in 10th grade, I played in the band room. We were like just playing music of our own. And I played The Cure. Oh. And I remember people hating it, like le- legitimately <laughs> hating it and thinking it was weird <laughs> that I would like it at all. Uh huh. And, you know, I wasn't confident enough to stick up for myself about it. I didn't believe them, but I stopped playing it. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So it was yeah. that kind of stuff. It was a thing where, oh, I can't do this thing, I guess. I guess I better not let people, you know, know I like this or I like this mm-hmm. or, you know, and, and that was largely experience was, was trying to put on the role of the acceptable person. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
And do you think that was that just about the cure and like, or was that a, a connect, was that connected to identity? Do you think, or was that just like, cure's not cool? <laughs> um, so what was connected to identity in that way? Yeah, uh, was I think what I was playing was very soft compared to what the people around me were expecting was acceptable. Got it. And that really was it. Like there was a lot of kind of taunting around the the notions of of you know this isn't this this or that enough. You know. Got it, got it, and got it. and those types of things that was always there. That was always that kind of of sifting. Um, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. That's the way to say it. For me as well, like I think race might have been a, a more impactful part of that than even gender was because of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I didn't like the things I was supposed to like, and everyone seemed to agree with that opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no matter no matter who I was around. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, people who looked like me or didn't, no one agreed that I was doing it right. Um, and that's the heavy thing. Yeah, yeah, that was, on this side of it, I look at it and see some good opportunity that I, for one reason or another, and I have I have no stake, in, or not no stake, but I have no control over this. This was just kind of how it was. Yeah, I could feel those things happening, but I didn't believe them. And that was maybe mm-hmm. my saving grace in a lot of things that I right. felt obligated to how I needed to perform or behave, but I didn't necessarily believe the things that I was around. And and I think that carried me enough to be able to get to a point where I was able to let go of the need of the performance. Yeah. Yeah. With regard to the specific, I'm wondering if when, when you've actually gone out to like acquire gear, mm-hmm. <laughs> for example, yeah. what that's been like. In the past, that was filled with a lot of experience of of just those assumptions that I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's carried over. That that was a before and after transition part of the experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's quite annoying uh, because I feel like, well, it just is. <laughs> it, it just is annoying. Like it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And it's 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 patently like ridiculous and and annoying. And it just makes the experience like so much more anxiety ridden than it needs to be. It's like I'm doing this thing that I love you know, for reasons right. that are important to me, do you want my money? Like, like, <laughs> like well, I, I don't, I don't get why this is a big deal. Like, I don't, I don't know why you need to lecture me about things along with just letting me give you money for a thing I, I already knew I wanted. Seems simple enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, Somehow. Yeah. I, I compensate now by mostly just buying things online if I can and avoiding interactions with people. It's much better. Yeah, that's such an interesting phenomenon. And I don't know why it had never really occurred to me because I think I do, personally, I do a little bit of both, but it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it totally makes sense that that has been a default for a lot of folks. Like, oh yeah, I guess I just don't have to do that thing that's making me feel terrible. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I I hope people feel that ability in their lives. Again, I I recognize the amount of privilege that I have regardless of all else to, to be able to make a lot of decisions and to do a lot of things that other people struggle to do or, or have to wade through more difficulty to do kind of gotten to a stage where I, I've found some workarounds and I'm glad for those and try to hold on to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that mechanism itself describes the problem. You know, I'm, I found these workarounds to avoid this clearly to me inevitable experience of being judged for who I am being you know looked down upon as like the wrong person to be doing this type of thing and I think that's pretty terrible you know that the 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 good situation is is finding a way to to work around this inherent ridiculousness I I think that's terrible 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a, there's so much of that in many people's lives mm-hmm. outside of music, inside of music, everywhere. Oh, yeah. It's like it. Yeah. It's like a constant shifting and the amount of like mental, physical, financial energy that goes into that, like I feel like gets discounted sometimes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just even just staying in the the headspace of like, I'm doing this for this. Oh, and I, I have this idea. And I think if I, you know, pursue this or buy this particular bit, bit of gear, this is going to help me with this thing that I've been like working up for a long time. And then to have it turn into just kind of a downer experience, it kind of takes the wind out of your sails a little bit too. Yeah. And part of wanting to share about. that ex- I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to No, up. no, I was just sorry. I was just saying it's because it's something you're excited about. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like yeah. that you know, what I want to do is to be able to go out and, and experience like that joy with, with someone I interact with the way that I see mm-hmm. other people do the way that I see that that works pretty seamlessly for, for some yeah. folks. Yeah. I want that too, because music's wonderful, you know, and, and getting to in, interact with other musicians is always cool. Oh, and then they're not cool. And I'm like, <laughs> what, wait, what's cool about this again? <laughs> I know. Back to my little yeah. cave working on my, my, by myself. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> No, Did, I don't you mean spent, to make it sound you, bad. I just, I just no, no, like, no, 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 no. Have you spent, uh, given given this conversation, have you spent time in like forums and that kind of thing online? Years ago. It's not something yeah. I, I don't participate in forums anymore. And even in the past, I didn't very often. But it was a very, it was a very masculine place to be, uh, which is fine, fine uh, as a base level. Where it was not fine was when this assumption of what masculinity meant was really like needless behavior and and that's that's online presence anywhere of course but certainly (laughs) uh yeah in forums and things like that it was was a lot of there's less sharing of ideas and less sharing about what things meant and more focus on dominating people with your knowledge uh, which i think is really uncreative and boring yeah it's interesting i i feel like there's there's this argument that you know feminists are trying to get rid of masculinity and you know like that's what the thing is and the problem is like masculinity in of itself is fine Mm -hmm. it's when you're trying to masculinity all over other people (laughs) that it becomes a problem yeah yeah i don't know yeah absolutely absolutely agree with that like you know it, it just it's changed the focus on music from someplace where I think it should be, and that's my value, to someplace I don't think it needs to be. I think music can be a beautiful thing, and that's something I think a lot of, of people believe or feel as well. But I definitely see that there's some barriers to the way people express that, the way that they manage it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Guard it, perhaps. Yes. Yes. I think that's a, a good word for that because I feel like that's the thing I feel like I've been having this conversation a lot lately but just the interesting thing around masculinity and like constantly having to prove it yeah I relate to that very directly yeah that was that was a large part of how I personally related and experienced to it it was a performance you know and that there there are masculine people that are not this way mm-hmm. but largely it has always felt like a performance of proving like you said like you know, to to be this is is only recognized by me proving that I am. And the way I prove that I am is by denigrating anything that is not this. Mm-hmm. And that's the part of it I think is just kind of useless. It's kind of yeah. taking over a lot of, of, of just general reasoning, apparently. And it makes yeah. everything harder for, for everyone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just so much pressure. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering if there's like something that you're feeling that you've learned over the years that you feel kind of like, I am legitimately proud of this like thing that I have learned that I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that I could do. Okay. This is a very specific thing. Um, it's a, a specific gear related thing as it relates to recording and, and mm-hmm. sonics. But in the past, uh, I was talking about my, my interests and my pleasure with like, with gritty tones, with having that kind of aspect within music and, and finding ways to create that. And from my recording perspective, I love the studio worked had a lot of like great outboard gear. I got to work with a lot of like famous bits of gear that are really expensive. I would never purchase them on my own ever, ever, ever. Um, <laughs> and those things taught me a certain approach. I was working with a lot of bands when I worked in recording studios and there was really like joyous approach for me. Like I love bands. I love like rock bands in particular. I love the sound of the guitar that's going to like break you into a million pieces and make you <laughs> one with the universe. Like Ooh. I love it. And, but I took that approach into everything because I want everything to feel that urgency and that, I, I was going to say the word aggression, and it's mm-hmm. not aggression, but it's not not aggression. I, I, I love that. Almost like, a, it's a, is it like a tension or? Yeah, maybe that's better. Maybe, yeah, yeah, tension is good. Like, I really love that. My approach to that is I started to experiment with other musics that weren't as conducive to natural creating those was mm. to, I love the way I could make a compressor breathe and just pull apart into the tiny little tonal bits of it. I love that. And that had been my approach for a long time. What I'm proud of is is figuring out kind of further along here, as I pull back from that, I'm finding even more of these bits than I knew were ever there. What I'm proud of is being willing to like, to step back from something that was so ingrained in the way that I work and and to let it change the way that I want to work. I'm I'm proud of not letting myself stay married to to one thing. So with gear, I'm proud of like seeing that because then it opened me up like in a lot of other areas as well as being able to hear an instrument and find those parts that are already doing the things that I want. And I love manipulating things by I'm proud to have learned that I don't need to manipulate as, as many of the things as I wanted to. I think that's opened me up to a lot for me, more, more tonal opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As somebody who's like pretty new to recording compression is still sort of a mystery. And I, but I do feel like there are ways that when like, when you really have a, a really good grasp of it, that people are able to use it as its own tool, almost yeah. as a separate instrument. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's that. And then the, the other part of yep. that is in working with my modular rig. My, uh, so my Minibrew S and my modular rig are kind of tied together. I, I see them as one and the same. Like to me, they're, mm-hmm. they're a single instrument that I created. And that was the purpose was that instrument, um, the particular modules I chose for it. I'm also proud of finding a way to incorporate other instruments into that, you know, I mentioned earlier using contact mics and bringing sound sources into, into the modular. And, and that's opened up just a brand new world of of making that bridge, of finding that way between the two things. Yeah, I don't feel like that was a very good answer, but uh... I like there was two good answers. I don't know what you're talking about. That was not just one, but two. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, but that makes sense because it's like I feel like once being able to marry the or to have the two spaces where you can have like the electronic and the uh, analog, I guess. Is that, that's not know. even the right word. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like using the word <laughs> organic about fruit. When organic. you're like, oh, there's, there's yeah. carbon in that fruit. I know. Do tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what any of the oh. words mean. I know that uh, I heard them a lot when I would. Yeah. 
read advertisements for gear, but I don't know what they mean. It seems fine. I, we're going to go with it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So as we're closing out here a little bit, if you had like a direct line <laughs> to someone in the industry, in the music yeah. gear industry, who's like, Marcy, we're really trying to make some change here. Got to make this better, make it feel better for folks. How do we, how do we do it? And uh, what would you be your recommendation for them? I think representation is important everywhere in the world for everything that people do. And I think that that's one thing that in certain circles is improved uh, in the music world, but not everywhere. And I think music can be a beautiful thing in people's lives. I know that's, you know, that's a phrase I should put on a mug, but Please I do. believe it. Like, I, I think it's absolutely true. I think accessibility to music by any person is important. I think everyone should have the opportunity to know something about music, to feel that they can participate in music, even if they're not really good. I think that expectation keeps people from getting really good, who could otherwise be. Regardless of whether or not they are, it keeps them from something I think that they could experience joy in doing. And I think that the world needs more joy. I think people all deserve more joy. And I think representation is the first step to showing that everybody deserves joy. I think people who have the ear, you know, the public, whatever that means, I think there is some responsibility uh, for those that that aren't set out to exclude. I think there is some responsibility to find ways to show how everyone can participate, whether that's making products that everyone can access somehow, or if that's marketing in a way that people see themselves represented as a person who's the right kind of person to use this, which, you know, the trick of that is that everyone's the right kind of person to use it. And <laughs> surprise, um, I think we stop <laughs> tying gear to identities and, and vice versa. I think that, that would do a lot to, to give people that, that sense that this is mine or this can be mine, or I can make this mine or this belongs to me. I think it would also do a lot to bring people together that, not only is the representation important, I think, for people who are seeing themselves represented, but I think it's important for everyone to see everyone else represented so that you mm -hmm. understand that these are people who share the planet with you. And, and it seems like they like the same things that you like. It's right. probably possible that these people can be your friends. What? <laughs> it's probably possible. <laughs> I, I think that that's an important thing for everyone, seeing that we can all contribute, you know, yeah. Even if we're just contributing ourselves, I feel like that's the thing that needs to, to be known. Totally. Yeah. That's fabulous. I'm putting all of that on a mug. It's going to be a really big mug. <laughs> it's more like <laughs> a beer stein. <laughs> I support it. Uh... <laughs> so what are you, is there anything in particular you want to point out for people that's like coming up for you that you, that you're psyched about? Yeah, so as we speak, the uh, Modular World one-year anniversary show is airing, and I was lucky enough to be invited to contribute to that. I have a performance, video performance that I made a couple weeks back that will air at 9 p.m. my time tonight. I, that's Ooh. where's my time zone? I'm in Arizona, and we don't have time zones. So yeah, 9 p.m. in Arizona, whatever time that is for other people elsewhere. I was excited about that. I, I was really appreciative to Jono for asking me to do that. 
I was really excited to see such an expansive list of different kinds of people on that show. And I feel like that's the world I want to live in. I appreciate people making those kinds of things. In addition to that, what am I doing? I'm continuing to work on some, some songs of my own. Pretty excited for those coming up soon. Uh, I've been at that for a little while and it's, it's important for me to say that it's the best work I've ever, ever, ever done. Um, I'm, wow. I'm very happy about that. I don't know if other people will agree, but it does not matter to me if they <laughs> it doesn't agree. doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but some very personal songs that uh, I'm excited to share. So that's hopefully coming up soon. I don't have a, I, I, you know, I don't know what the record will be called yet. So I, I will tell well, you though, that the possible lead track is titled Manic Pixie Magical Negro. So yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's going to be great. So, I'm on board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's probably the name of the record. I don't know. I've, I've probably just obligated myself to it by saying it, which I kind of said it on purpose so that I would make some decisions. There you go. So, but I'm I very excited about that. Here. That'll, I don't know when that's going to be done, but that's coming soon this year, next couple months as well. I've been uh, waiting for a trip to France that has been on hold for a little while. I'm going to go to the French countryside and make some music because of a really great opportunity. And I'm super excited about that. I've never left the country ever. And I'm quite grateful that worked out. And now that COVID is, is receding, um, receding, yeah. <clears throat> receding, I'll say that. Yeah. So that's probably going to be next year, but, uh, you know, those are kind of the things on tap for me. In addition to some, some projects with some other folks, I'm hoping to have to get happening this year. So. That's, that is super exciting. So wait, do. so if people want to find out about said projects, uh, yes. <laughs> upcoming Marcy-related items, uh, where would you direct them? So in general, my band camp is the best place to find me, marcy.dh, and uh, my Instagram, which periodically I will post some little snips of things I'm working on or announcements of things as they come. I have been mostly laying low the last year. It's probably been longer than that, and but it's been a good time to, to keep my head in the screen and keep making music. So, but that's where people can usually find me. Nice. Cool. Well, I am very excited to hear about all of these uh, upcoming items. And I feel like this France thing is very, it's going to be uh, fun. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about that one quite a lot. Yeah. Actually, I do want to talk yeah. about this. So like, my intention yes. for this, I know we're wrapping up Please. here, but um, yes. I'm going to get to stay in this cool French chateau very exciting. Mm. It's so weird. I feel so bougie and it's strange, <laughs> but my intention is to go there, this very old building. And I mentioned earlier that I, my affinity for just sounds and tones, I love the way rooms sound. I love being in an exciting room and hearing the way the, the, the sound works in that space. So mm. my intention going there is to do some field recordings of sounds as well as instruments mm. that I'm able to play in those rooms and, and build some, uh, some music that represents that place built from the sounds of that place. That's very exciting. Oh, that's, that is uh, exciting and beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm into yeah. that. I, I do hope yes. to expand that project into doing this in other places as well. I, I was hoping you were going to say that. Oh, absolutely. The, the sound <laughs> of, of places, the sounds of buildings. This is that marrying between my first intention to be an architect and my love of buildings and just yeah. the, the incredibleness of the things that humans can build. There's, there's always sound involved in those. And I, I like to capture it and make new beautiful things from those. So that's, that's my uh, plan. That's great. Thanks for letting uh, me say yeah. all that. <laughs> no, I'm very excited. Uh, I love all of it. And I love that you will have an opportunity to go to those places and make those recordings. All of these yeah. things seem great. 
I'm very excited, very, very fortunate for this to, yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been really fun. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Hillary. I appreciate it too. I had a really great time. It's great to do it. I really got pulled into this conversation and I could talk to Marcy pretty much all day long, forever. That's maybe we can arrange that. We'll see what we can do. She is just so great. So take a peek over at the show notes to stay connected with her and to hear her music too. So much of the conversations we have around making change and shifting culture happen after the fact, right? Is the bad stuff's already gone down. So... <laughs> We talk about education, we talk about training, which is a lot of the work that I do. But for that, when we're talking about workplace trainings or anything like that, a lot of what we're talking about is undoing things that we already learned, right? So like from our parents, from schools, from the media, from the culture at large, it's all in our brains and we're trying to undo it. So my first introduction to prevention work was in my role as a prevention educator at our local rape crisis center here. So my job was to go to businesses, schools, universities to talk to folks about issues such as like gender roles, stereotypes, consent issues, definitions, legal issues connected to sexual violence prevention. And, you know, from a public health approach, this is called primary prevention. Sometimes people talk about this as like going upstream, right? So like you're preventing something from happening in the first place. That's what you're doing. You're changing norms and attitudes so that this doesn't happen. Secondary prevention, on the other hand, occurs immediately after an event happens to decrease the impact of the event or prevent it from happening again in the future. And so this might include things like training first responders in trauma-informed care, for example. Tertiary prevention addresses like long-term consequences. So this could include something like therapy for a survivor or for an abuser or something like that. So in the music gear industry, in order to shift culture, a combined approach is helpful, as with other places. So we need to focus not just on giving cis women, trans, and non-binary folks, LGBTQ folks, BIPOC folks the mic, right? Like that's a lot of the conversation. In order for us to truly shift culture, we need to focus on primary, pre primary prevention and the one ultimate tool of primary prevention, which is parenting. So I, you know, and I've discussed this here on multiple occasions. Other people talked about it here as well. The importance of raising children who don't create negative environments for others is basically tantamount, right? So like, of course, as parents... We're just one influence on a child's life, but as we all know, it can be a powerful one, or I think most parents would like to think it's a powerful one. Sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes they wouldn't. I guess it depends. But uh, the more attention that we give to these issues, the less undoing that we have to do, right? So if you're a parent, you, you really do have a lot of power to make change. And I am in no way a parenting expert, but I am a parent, and obviously I've you know, spend a lot of time talking about these issues. I've done a lot of research on this stuff. So yeah, with that, here are a few suggestions for where to begin. So first is media literacy. So parents are a big influence on kids, as we assume they are. The influence of their media consumption is also up there, right? Like that's another big thing. This doesn't mean that your child can only watch PBS forever, right? That, that's not what that means. But it does mean that you can provide them with tools to analyze things that aren't on PBS. 
And that might mean that you need to watch with them sometimes to help guide questions, especially if the show's new to you or book is new to you, right? I'm talking about shows, but this could be a book. It could be a show, could be music, whatever. Um, so what questions did you ask? So there are five big media literacy questions that are a good place to start. I'll have a link in the notes for that. And, you know, it's like weird. <laughs> Who created this? Why did they create this? create this? Who's not included? Those kinds of things, right? You know, and of course, sharing media that has better representation in the first place means that you have less questioning to do, which is great. So that's like the best thing to do. But you also want to be prepared, make sure that folks are prepared for when they go out in the world and that they have the tools to, you know, <laughs> make sure that they can analyze things that aren't just like placed in front of them the way that parents often choose to do. So at our house, when we're reading books or watching shows with like poor representation, we talk about it, right? So I like, ask my son, like, it seems like there's only white people and like mostly boys in this show. Does that seem fair, right? Framing it around fairness can be useful. Or like, why is it that so many princesses need to be rescued? Hmm. And then, you know, we have a conversation about it. And he's five, but he can he can handle it. He's got some, uh, you know, he, he also has questions about that. Like, he's brought those things up to me before. So, obviously, if it's a question, you know, it's good to talk about it. So, two, model the behavior and language that you want to see. So, if you've ever taken a psychology course, you probably learned about Albert Bandier's social learning theory, right? And the Bobo doll experiment. You might remember that. So if you are calling people names, if you're talking about your weight, other people's weight, or making, you know, stereotypical comments or other things like that in front of your child, they will notice, right? And they're going to internalize those messages. If you are in a heterosexual household and your responsibilities break down in really like highly gendered fashion, for example, your child will notice. If you only interact with people who look like you, your child will notice, like they're paying attention. And the way that we behave and interact with other people is a model for them. So three, assess your community. So on that note, right, taking stock of your community is important. So who do you interact with on a regular basis? Who attends your child's school, your church, who's in your family? If all of these people look like you, it might be an opportunity to kind of like extend your circle and think about what that might look like. If you live in a highly segregated community, Note that. Talk about why. You know, you can get into redlining or gentrification or that kind of thing. Contact theory states that, you know, especially under the right conditions, interactions with people who are different from you can actually lead to increased familiarity and trust and reduce prejudice, right? So there's something to that, right? So four, lift them up. Not like physically, but like, you know, emotionally. Um, obviously, you should tell your child that you love them, that you're proud of them, all of those things. That's great. But reinforcing specific positive behaviors when they do them is great, too. So like if they help a sibling or a friend, that's a good time to like be like, wow, uh, you were really, really kind to your friend by saying X, Y, Z, whatever it is that they did. Um, so naming it very specifically. And of course, a side effect of this is that if they feel good about themselves and if they're confident in themselves, it will be easier for them to stand up against those who are, you know, creating a negative environment in the future. And especially if your child is a part of an oppressed group, sharing more about the positive aspects of that group and its history is a good protective factor, right, when they encounter negative spaces in the future, which most folks already know. So, Five, teaching them consent. So children need to learn that their body is theirs and that they do not control other people's bodies or have access to them um, without permission. And that means that, you know, they don't have to hug their grandparents or anyone else if they don't want to. 
You can also teach them this by asking permission to give them a hug or a kiss yourself. And that if they don't want to hug another child or hold their hand, they need to ask, or if they do, they have to ask for permission to do so and then listen if they say no, right? Six, build empathy. So teach your child that other people's feelings are important and those feelings are not more or less important than their own. <laughs> That's important, right? This helps keep children from thinking that they are the center of the universe and decreases their likelihood of entitled behavior in the future. Seven, talk about power and privilege, right? Like kids have a lot of questions about why people behave the way they do. And, you know, when my child asks why a child bullies other children, we discuss the reasons behind that, that the child wants power and that they may have learned that from their parents, that that's how you get it. But, you know, that real power comes from being kind and helping others, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. So we, we talk about race. We talk about gender issues openly. We talk about them regularly. And, you know, talking about these dynamics helps to provide sort of context for other messages that they might get in the world. Right. So I am not a perfect parent, far from it. And I do not, you know, remember to do all these things all the time. And there's much more to it, obviously, than just this. But beginning these conversations now can be a step towards raising children who will create the supportive music spaces we want to see, right? So whether at the workplace, in music venues, in bands, studios, social media, if we want to create better spaces, this is the place to start, right? And, you know, as the mom of white boy, I take the responsibility of raising him to be a caring, kind, empathetic person, potential future partner, and community member very, very seriously, and I'm sure most parents do. And, you know, if you have other ideas or tips you use when raising your child, I would love to hear them. It's always good to have more ideas uh, and share them. So yeah, definitely uh, shoot me a message if you have any other ideas for things that you that you do. So with that, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes uh, or Apple Podcasts and more people get to hear about it. Thanks so much for listening. 